out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Easton. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the Jazz Butcher conspiracy, or the Jazz Butcher. Basically, I spoke to Pat Fish from the band to find out more about life, love, poetry, and everything else in between. It's a long interview, but it's great. And if you don't like it, then don't listen. It's a free country-ish. Anyway, look, um, yes, I've left it all in, actually, because the first bit is quite interesting. I think so. But if you listen to this, it was recorded in um, August 2020 the time of covid anyway so it all makes sense so um i asked pat how he was doing and this was his reply and he gives us lots of information and detail anyway make notes i will test you at the end pat how has life been for you well i'm gonna i i've had a very unusual experience with this in that you know since we've had to stay home and stuff um it hasn't discombobulated me really in any way shape or form because I was only previ- previously. I was only leaving the house like to get essential supplies, or if I was getting paid. Yeah. And uh, all the way through January and February, I had no work, no reason to leave the house, so I didn't. And then by March, it was like I'm not going out there. There's a killer virus. And only last night, I left the house in any significant way for the first time since oof, March, because. Uh, this other group I play in, we had a little band practice for, you know, the first time in ages. Yes. And uh, that was a nice feeling, actually. And I know, you know, we've all been, like, paranoid and staying in our homes. We know we're safe. But, yeah, it was, um, it was a jolly experience. But, yeah, you know, my first two months of the year, I was kind of under self-imposed house arrest anyway. And then the thing happened. And... Um, you know, suddenly I went from being sort of like the undeserving poor to being one of the privileged few, because it's only a little one, but I've got a garden. Yes. And, of course, the weather in the spring was absolutely gorgeous. So uh, I just did a lot of gardening, read a lot of books. Um, I've been, you know, just living my best life, really. And the funny joke is, you know, suddenly I'm doing the right thing, and... uh, Oh, yeah, that's the other thing about it. I'm making more money by not leaving the house than I used to do by leaving it. <laughs> How good. mad is that? But eventually I was talked into doing one of these online sort of gig-from-home jobs, you know. Yeah. And so I got something approaching a half-decent sound and did it very primitive. And, um, you know, the, the etiquette of this thing is that they have what they call a tip jar. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I looked in that a couple of days after the event, and um, it is so far in excess of what I've been paid for doing a gig on my own, ever. Yeah. And of course it is, because, you know, there's no limit to the number of people who can watch it, and, you know, if they just bung you $5 a piece, suddenly you've done really well. Wow, this is great. And, you know, they're not, they're not going to get a night out in a nightclub for $5, so... Everyone's a winner, baby. That's no lie. (laughs) The only embarrassing part of it is that I have to say to people that for all that I've worked with, like really good, solid left-wing people like Alan McGee and Dave Barker, you know, I've ended up working with a couple of um, right-wing billionaires. (laughs) 
Zuckerberg and Teal. Yes. Well, you know? it's it's and, a con. Yes. Yeah, and that, those monsters, right, are enabling me to make more money than all the righteous, decent people I've ever worked with. It's insane. Yeah, it's quite weird. But I'm no, I did an interview with Hazel O'Connor who was doing those, and she, she, they got duped because somehow somebody said, oh, pay, pay this kind of account, and people, you know, they kind of, I don't know how they did it, but so people started paying, and it was going into some, you know, el- I was just some young entrepreneur. Yeah, somehow they <laughs> they crashed the. So so luckily yours yours were fine because she suddenly had to email everyone the next day to say sorry, but somebody had hijacked the link and had oh. had to sort of you know all the money you gave us went to someone that we'll never see again. But um, do you fancy doing it again next week? But next time, you know. But um, yes, it was a bit. So it's it swings around about. I'm really pleased you managed to get such a good experience though, because. Um, Yes, it's it's yeah, quite so interesting. It was, it was surprising. I mean, it's very odd, but at the end of the day, I'm not unused to sitting playing electric guitar in my living room, you know. So uh, the singing's a bit strange because I don't generally do that. But you know, it's it's quite a relaxing way to do music. And, yeah, because I've spoken yeah. to a few artists who were just bringing out albums this kind of spring after working for years, putting them together, got the tour uh-huh. sorted out, thinking this is great. At last, I can release this baby into the world, and it's like shit. <clears> it's <throat> not going. So they they both felt a bit. They they were sort of feeling devastated, especially somebody who was a bit too who kind of had the maths that he was in America and thought, right, we will lose the money on the album, make it up on the touring with the, you know, T-shirts and all that mm-hmm. malarkey. And so he was a bit traumatised. And the other guy was Hank Wangford, who was, um, yes, the country and western singer. And he put the album out, so was just thinking, oh, that's a bit of a shame. And I asked him if being at home, being forced to be at home and having this time was making him more creative. And he said, not really. So you, you've had a yeah. bit more of a better experience of being in lockdown. Well, I'm, as I say, I mean, I just, I remember Max, Max Ida saying to me a good 10 years ago, it's like, ah, you, you put yourself under house arrest anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm not unused to it. Um, you know, I'm very lucky. I've got a garden. I've got a lodger who does the shopping for me, which is brilliant. You know, I'm, I could be so much worse off. Yes. I get a bit of conversation and um, everything practical is pretty much taken care of. And mm. yes, just, you know, at first I, I had some money in the bank anyway, but it began to run down. And that was one of my motivations. Well, we've got to do one of these online gigs. Maybe we can make a couple of hundred quid, you know. Yes. And, um, yeah, a um, couple hundred quid. Like, yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's, it'll all go through the books. It's all legit. It's all there on the PayPal account, you know. Yeah, well, absolutely. But, uh, but it, it's kind of it's yeah, kind of interesting it how it's kind of evolved in this kind of process. But also the timing. At least you don't have an... In a, we don't have any heating bills, definitely not on days like this. And um, yeah. and I, I got the car MOT'd a few weeks ago. And I'd only done 2,000 miles because I don't use it much anyway, but but, um, in the last three months, even less. So there you go. So I think a lot of people have saved a fortune on their petrol bill because they just haven't had to go anywhere. And then they thought, oh, let's just do the meeting on Skype, FaceTime, Zoom. That's the key one. And it's like, oh, right, we could do this in the future rather than spending all day having a meeting. And it's like, yeah, you should really. It's a bit silly going across London or across the country just to have a meeting with someone when you can do it in your pyjamas from the bottom well, down. Well, yeah, if 
all you've got to do is talk, then yeah, absolutely. There you go. There is there is other things that people tell me about, like networking, but that's a bit overrated, really. But um, yes. <laughs> so look, what's all, yeah? So so I do this show, the C eighty six show. Um, what's because you were very much part of that kind of the glory decade, as we we come to call it. I mean, it was a bit grim actually politically, but but there were lots of good things about it. But what's kind of always curious was what was your kind of the the early the formative years of your life like you know because I'm in my mid fifties now born in sixty four you know it was the it was the glam period that I remember the top of the pops and before that my mum listened to Radio Two probably that I seem to remember I remember Jimmy Young and the what's the recipe today Jimmy kind of moment in the sixties and she would yeah. scribble down this recipe and then put it in a Bit, put the bit of paper into a cupboard and never see it again. But what were you kind of... When did you start thinking, actually, I'm quite obsessed with this band, this sound? Um, my first brush with the sound of the electric guitar, predictably, I guess, was The Shadows, when I was about oof, three years old, perhaps, in my grandfather's bungalow in Twickenham. And... He and my grandma, they had a Shadows record called um, Walk, Don't Run. But this record excited me to such a sort of fever pitch that actually all I would do is run, not walk. And I would just hurtle up and down this kind of sort of corridor in the middle of the bungalow. And I would just run up and down it like an idiot at a racetrack because I didn't really know what was happening to me, but I liked it. Yes. So that was the electric guitar at a very young age. Um, and then, I mean, even when I was like five years old, uh, strange things would happen. Um, I liked pirates, like a lot of little boys do. You know, I thought pirates were a gas. And um, there was this band, of course, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. And as it happens, Mick Green, the electric guitar player in that band, is a monster. He's almost like the British Link Ray or something like that. Um, so, you know, I got lucky because they dressed up as pirates in the odd photograph. I got exposed to some really hot electric guitar from them. And, of course, my mum had the occasional seven-inch from the Beatles and the Stones. She didn't go much deeper than that. She did, and I now have it. I uh, have a seven-inch, original seven-inch of uh, them with Van Morrison doing Gloria and Baby Please Don't Go on the other side. So your, <clears throat> so your parents were quite hip to the trip then? No, not at all. No, um, it sounds kind of cool, but you know, my mum would have this handful of singles that she bought to sort of, you know, be with what was happening. I think that was partly because having moved out of London, she was just sort of desperately nostalgic for anything happening. Because you know, when you get dumped down in the Northamptonshire village in the first part of the sixties, then you know things get a bit slow. So I think she was probably just trying to g yourself up a little bit. Um, but, I mean, she didn't have bad taste. She liked Sinatra. She liked, um, what's his name with the piano there, Fats Waller. She used to enjoy him. Louis Armstrong. Right. Um, well, well, yes. They, they, they very rarely played records, my parents. And my father was a complete stiff. I mean, he was, I don't, his idea of a jolly record listening session would involve some Sicilian opera or some nonsense like that. Blimey. Never going to opera. 
but but slightly high art then, because my parents were into country and western and really bad mm-hmm. country and western. I mean, we're talking boxcar willy here. It's not good. Jim Reeves. I was quite scarred. Yeah, not good, was it? I mean, later on, he then sort of, you know, rediscovered his love for Elvis. But they were the generation, you know, the working class, and I suppose most people were, where when they got married in the 50s, they sold everything, including the record player and whatever they had, to just to get a place that you did. Because mostly people didn't have debt in those days. You didn't have any debt. You just, you saved, 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 then you bought something, then you did it again. So, um, yeah. you know, it was only in the 70s that a record player appeared in our bungalow. I'm glad you mentioned the word bungalow. It still makes me laugh yeah. when I hear the word. But, um, yes. So, but but obviously, Northampton, was it quite a strange place? Well, it is quite a strange place. There's nowhere quite like Northampton. I mean, I've been to a lot of towns, and there's nowhere quite like Northampton. <laughs> yes. But this is the home of um, Bauhaus, isn't it? Yes, they're from here. Alan Moore, of course, he still lives around the corner. Yes. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, he goes nowhere. He, he did a bit of travelling in the 80s when things like Watchmen made him famous, and he didn't like that one bit. So he's based around town and looks after us. Um, who else comes from? I think Des O'Connor is from Northampton, you know? Nice. I just remember that was famous because George Best scored six goals against Northampton, didn't they? Turn many decades ago. Yeah, that was yeah. Wonderful. Having having spent the previous night getting absolutely wanked. <laughs> um, yeah, he turned up with a hangover. He got a right telling off from the manager, and um, went out and scored six goals. Yeah, that's good old Georgie. But then what happened? I was not there. No, but what then happened for you to you? To you during the 70s? Because obviously this is school, university, all that other groovy stuff. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I made what can only be described as a schoolboy error, really. I was good at giving them what they wanted. My whole idea was like, you know, get in, get out, get the job done. Um, and I figured out when I was about 10 what these clowns wanted. So I was like the good student. But, of course, this meant that I just got an extra sentence because I ended up going to university on top. Um, mind you, it didn't cost anything in those days. No. <laughs> no. But, um, but obviously you went, you went to a very prestigious university, so you, you, know, you must have had some to deal with the class system full on at that stage. I was quite... I remember turning up, like, the second day there, there was, like, a photograph of all the new estudiants, you know, and my teachers had been bigging it up. I think basically if they got me into Oxford, then, you know, they reckon they'd get a bonus. But they were bigging it up to me. They're saying, oh, it's not like here. It's not like school. You'll like it. It's like, yeah, it's clever people. You'll enjoy it. All this all these business. <laughs> and I remember turning up for the photograph, and I don't know how many kids were there, maybe 60 or something like that. I don't, maybe more. Um and I, at the time, I got put my hand up, I had hair down on my shoulders. And I figured there'd be quite a lot of people like me. And I was wrong about that. There was one. One other freak. <laughs> <laughs> in the whole year in the college. I mean, in the end, I met a couple of others who just didn't look like freaks, but were proper freaks. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time. What was kind of weird at college was that the gang I fell in with um, they all loved to play bridge. 
I mean, I didn't know Bridge from a Hole in the Road, right? No. Uh, it's just something that happened on telly or something, you know. And so I was there, not playing Bridge, so my capacity was sort of like BJ, tea maker, joint roller, you know? Yes. And um, it, was quite, it was quite a good education. That's where I've discovered uh, Todd Rundgren, for example, was through those guys. Right. Was, it, was there a bit of a prog rock vibe with, with the people around you? Um, those guys weren't so much into prog. Um, actually, they had quite good taste. I mean, they had a bit of Grateful Dead in there. Steely Dan, which I don't like, but a lot of people do. What else did they play? Yeah, they loved Todd, Wizard of True Star, good album, that. Right. Um, as time went by, you know, the Clash album arrived and the Stranglers came in. They liked the Stranglers because it sounded like the Doors, so that went down well. Um, yeah, they, they, they didn't have bad taste. They're, they're decent kids. And when were you going to gigs at this stage? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I started going to shows when I was about 15 or something like that, 16. I've got a little live intro to one of the songs I do these days. I, I go stamping on. I don't. I don't play guitar. I just shout. I don't even go to the microphone and just shout. My hair's all wrong. My time ain't long. When I was just a little kid, I used to go and see Gong. <laughs> it's like a one, two, three, four, but a bit slower. <laughs> yes, nice. So when did did you? I mean, at that stage, it was sort of like the odd sort of spliff. What about LSD? Did that sort of appear on the scene? I did my first acid quite late in life, I guess. I was about 20. Yes, definitely, I was 20. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't regret it for a moment. Um, it's one of those things, isn't it? You do it a little bit, you do it two or three times, and then, like, the urge just kind of evaporates. Yes. You know? It's, it's, it's the opposite of addictive, I think. It's quite serious, isn't it, really? Let's face it. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's, it's a serious but, I mean, I think you'd have to be either very careless or very unfortunate for it to do you any lasting harm. No, yes. Well, Whereas that... I think on, on the whole it probably can give people a lot of help. I mean, before it was made illegal because everyone was guzzling it in the street, you know. Um, when psychiatrists and that were using it, they were, they were finding it's very good, for example, in breaking addictions. Yes. Um, and they're talking again now, the scientists, they're talking about how psilocybin, which is a similar thing in magic mushrooms, how, again, that can that can be very helpful in uh, breaking addictions or bad habits, you know. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. We it's, don't understand it yet. It's a big one, the mind. Yes. But then you graduated the 80s, the great decade. Thatcher had gotten <laughs> in 79 when did you start thinking, you know, I might be a singer, I might be a musician, I could write songs? Mm. Well, when I was at college, I started playing in bands, and uh, after a little while, the standards of the bands became a little bit more, you know, demanding that you had to do originals and stuff. Well, we didn't have to, but that was the gang that we were running with, you know, it's like... Uh, yeah, we had some good songwriters. There was a guy called John Silver. He had this band called Sonic Tonics. I ended up singing for them. Um, and I wasn't really writing songs at the time. Um, I was just kind of singing John's, which is kind of funny because sometimes, you know, I'd have my feelings about the, the lyric I was singing and I'd be, have it, a certain image in my head. And then later in conversation with John, it would turn out that I completely misunderstood what I was singing. <laughs> <laughs> but when that band broke up, um, I was a little bit sad and lonely, 
it's sad and lonely. And that's when I started wondering. I'll tell you a couple of things related to the Velvet Underground that made me think maybe I could do songwriting. Um, round about the time that band was breaking up, um, a single came out by Mo Tucker, the drummer from the mm. Velvet Underground. And she sang, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, the old Tim Pan Alley hit, you know. And she sang and played everything on the record herself. And I thought, that's interesting. That's interesting. And I thought about Eno talking about working within your own limitations, you know. And I was thinking, yeah, yeah, maybe if I thrashed around with tape recorders and that, maybe I too could do a song, you know. Yes. Um, the other, the other Velvets-related thing that was a big impetus for me round about that time was a, a bootleg appeared of what we now know was a French TV show, The Bataclan, in, I think, 1971, yeah. where Lou Reed, John Cale, and Nico somehow all turned up and did a, a, like an acoustic gig together. You know, it's acoustic guitar, it's piano, Nico's got a harmonium, bless. Um, you know, and to hear those Velvet Underground songs completely stripped of any electricity, stripped down to just the bare bones, and delivered as beautifully and delicately as they do that evening. That, that, that taught me a lot. You know, that taught me that you don't have to be super loud. You don't have to be flowers by the psychedelic furs all night long. Yes. You know, there, is, there are other ways of getting into this that are, if you like, easy and cheap as well. Because, I mean, you know, any fool can lay his hands on an acoustic guitar at his mate's house. It's another matter of going out and buying a telecaster mm. or something, you know. Because in a way, the 70s was quite intimidating because you, you, know, you had the glam period, which obviously is quite sort of easygoing. Well, not easygoing, but, you know, quite straightforward, but loud. And then you had prog rock. Now, that's quite intimidating, isn't it? That's like the Roger, from the Roger Dean sleeve to the production, that's kind of high, high maintenance, really, isn't it? And then you had punk and you had all that attitude and then you saw Sham 69 doing the kids, if the kids are united, which seemed a bit... Like pantomime now, really. But then you had post-punk. Well, featuring child actor and ballet dancer Jimmy Percy, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know. But I saw I saw this Top of the Pops, you know, you know, with their kind of clip of to uh, their punk edition, and I was a bit sort of traumatised. This was quite recently, really, because <laughs> it just seemed really ridiculous the way they were singing and playing it. And the band, you know, they looked like just blokes who might have been in any band, but they happened to, you know, be in this band. They didn't really look punk to me. But anyway, I just thought the lyrics... Well, I mean, a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon, quite famous people. I mean, the Stranglers were going as a kind of dorsy prog rock band with attitude before punk came yes. along. XTC had long hair and called themselves the Helium Kids with a Z. Um, you know, no... Nobody comes like out of year zero. I mean, Johnny Rotten's a Van der Graaff generator fan, for God's sake. Yes, I know. Yeah. And um, who was it? I was reading Viv Albertine's book, and um, turns out that the fellow who was playing guitar, Keith Levine, playing guitar in Public Image Limited, turned out he started out his career as a guitar roadie for the guitar player in the prog rock band, yes. Nice. Steve Howe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, that's the fellow. 
Apparently, Steve Howe's son is a very good character. He's, I think he's a drummer, and he's got a recording studio. Apparently, he's a lovely chap. Yeah, in fact, he was the guy who recorded Viv Albertine's solo album. There you go. Okay, Viv Albertine. Blimey. Yeah, that, that, that... Which is brilliant, by the way, if you haven't heard it. Oh, okay, I'll check. I'll... Yeah, but then you had post-punk, didn't you, and all the scratchy stuff, you know, like Gang of Four magazine, Peel. Um, and then from that... That's little, little... Sonic Tonics band, right? Yeah. I remember John Silver, the boss of that band, walking into our little office one day, and he'd got a copy of Entertainment by the Gang of Four under his arm. Came in, slapped it down on the desk where we were gluing seven-inch sleeves together with print sticks, threw the Gang of Four down on the desk and just went, well, that's it, we might as well split up. yeah remember it like yesterday yes but then during that next period there was a sort of a change because there was also i don't know there were more sort of gender politics in the 80s was a bit more interesting so then you had people like the marine girls and sort of more acoustic you know like there there wasn't the need to be big and bombastic about it life you could be quite sort of diy and record in the shed and and read poetry or sing poetry that you just wrote about heartache which is a good one so then you know things things started to become a bit more diy and the indie scene started to bubble again didn't it well, not again, because it never bubbled in the first place. But you know, there was that kind of that world of you know cherry red records and you know paint. You know, I don't know that that sort of album that Mike you... Allway was. Uh, yeah, Mike Allway was kind of important in his own strange way. <laughs> yes, yeah. but you had that. I remember that... going to see him with the Sonic Sonics because we put out this little seven inch on our own. You know, very punk rock and the rest of it. We actually we were all on the dole and we put out a bloody single on our own money. How did we do that? Blame. You know. Um, but yeah, I remember talking to Michael uh, Michael and he was saying, "Have you heard Felt?" And I went, "No." He said, "Oh, you got to hear Felt. No symbols." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yes, yes. You don't want too many symbols. Um, so then, you know, then you know, eighty three was the big year. That was the year for the Smiths, and and you know, for me, indie pop really mm. did start. I mean, I know you had Orange right. Shoes, but then from the Smiths for the next five years, you know, there was that indie sound. I mean, you had Trevor Horn and that world of, you know, Duran Duran and, I don't know, Dire Straits, Tina Turner, that production, you know, that sort of whole ABC propaganda, which was a bit too much, really, for someone like me. But then you had, you know, the other bands from, like, the go-between June Brides, indie pop, it was great. We loved it. So then did you did you start to sort of form? Because the Jazz Butcher formed in sort of 83 period. Um, yeah, 82, wasn't it? You, you started to bring together the band. Well, yeah, there wasn't really a proper solid band until the beginning of 84. Max and I did this spectacularly catastrophic gig at Central London Poly. Um, it was it was absolutely hilarious. And afterwards, Dave Parker from Glass, he comes up to us, he goes, hmm, better get a rhythm section. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what followed was a very complicated system of like Northampton bass player rustling all the bass players in Northampton bands kind of shifted round a couple of places and we ended up with Dave which was well handy Dave Jake um, and that would have been the spring of 84 and that's when I really think it became a band when it became a solid performing band you know yes and then because you signed to a label which I haven't 
come across that much called Glass Records. I mean, there's yes, there's all the fam- there's all the famous ones, but Glass, I don't know. No, you- well, I can tell you some things about Glass Records, right? And it was effectively a geezer in a room with a telephone, and he took my lot from like the local pub and a shambles to a professional band playing like two nights at the Roxy in L.A. A geezer in a room with a phone. And that geezer's Dave Barker. And he's back. He's, he's releasing Glass Records again today. Um, yeah, he's done some great records lately, actually. He did uh, David J's last LP, which is a very lush double album. Um, and, yeah, he's, he's back at it. And Dave never gets the credit he deserves. But if you look at the records that Glass put out in the 80s, it's one of the coolest rotors. He's got David J in there. He's got our lot, obviously. He's put out records by the Pastels, by the Membranes, Nicky Sudden and Dave Cusworth, Jacobites. Mm. You know, he's put out some really, really classic records. So um, did... He did a record by um, Mayo Thompson. He re-released Corky's Step to His Father. He did a UK release for a couple of replacements albums. You know, he's just, he's he's on it. God, that's amazing. Did you? Yeah, did you? Records, I recommend it. Yeah, well, I will make a note. Did you? Um, did you feel like you were onto kind of like some sort of cultural zeitgeist here? Did when you first started? Because there was there was a huge kind of enthusiasm and excitement, and also during that time, and you probably we didn't really appreciate it. I mean, you, we had the unemployment benefit system, which helped a lot of bands, you know, especially yeah. Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance and blah blah. Enterprise Alliance was a gas. Yeah. That was that's the thousand pound one. Money. Yes, that's a good one. So that gave people that year to you know be an artist and get paid and get your housing benefit and council tax done and all that. Yeah. So that helped. But also you had <clears throat> you you had those kind of gatekeepers. You had the music papers, and they were quite a huge circulation. Then you had John Peel. Then you had people like Janice Long, a bit and Kid Jensen. And then every town and city had little venues. Mostly on a Monday or Wednesday night, because that's when, you know, people say, yeah, you can do whatever you want on those nights. Have an indie night, alternative night, because you're such alternative people. And so it did help people to, um, yeah, start to branch out a bit. So, the you know, looking back at it, obviously things are always different, but it, it did seem to be like, wow, things did rocket during the 80s. Yeah, we didn't really feel part of anything very much. Um you know, most of the scene paid no mind to us or thought we were a comedy band or something. And we thought most of the scene was um, not very good. <laughs> we never, I mean, you know, the production values that we brought once, you know, once we could afford a decent studio and had some clue what we were doing, the production values that we were bringing in were like production values from records from pre-punk you know, we liked Eno's solo records or, like, the Sid Barrett records or, like, you know, just well-produced shit like the Blockheads and stuff like that. You know, we we weren't... I can remember, I mean, it was really late in the day. It was 1998, and I was in a record shop in Atlanta, Georgia, and there was a record playing in this in this record store, and it was some kind of indie music, and it was minor, and it was slow, and it wasn't in tune. And I remember thinking, it's like, you know, this, this DIY, scritchy, scratchy stuff. 
it's it's just descended into farce. It's like my band sounds worse than your band, you know. And we never liked any of that. We wanted records to sound good and be beautiful, and not necessarily to be fashionable, because that way we figured that they might actually last, like the records we liked. You know? Yeah. Stuff like Bob Dylan, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Because one thing and that... we didn't we didn't really feel a part of anything. We accidentally made friends with the Fall, which was very nice. Um, and they were always very nice to us, except when Brixie punched the drummer in the eye. <laughs> oh, that does, that does happen. Bless him, it was a funny moment. We played with them. It was Hammersmith Town Hall, which is hardly a regular venue. And um, the dressing rooms were down a big flight of steps from the stage. You know, huge flight of steps, town hall stuff. And across a big marbled hallway, and there were two doors, identical doors, and one of those was our dressing room, one of those was the dressing room of the fall. And we finished the gig, and I could see that Owen, the drummer, had got a hump. He was walking really fast. Apparently, he just had a really rubbish sound all night, and he was really fed up. And I couldn't catch him up. He was just moving too fast. But I was sufficiently close behind him that I realised that he was heading in his rage for the wrong dressing room door. <laughs> And before I could stop him, he raised up his foot and with a mighty kick, just bashed the door open. And it swung open. And I can just see Marky Smith at the end of the room turning around looking like, what? But even as that happened, standing right by the door at the time was Little Bricks, the guitar player, doing her makeup. And she didn't even stop doing her mascara. She just punched up. Straight in the eye. <laughs> Bash! It was absolutely perfect. Wow. Jeezy crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh. you know, you, you, you'd have done it yourself if the door just exploded on you like that and you were standing an inch away. Like, absolutely. God knows what would have happened if he'd hit it with it, you know. Blimey. Christ. Yes, that's not good, is it? That's not good. But, you know, there's all these stories about Mark thumping people, but on that occasion, it was little bricks. <laughs> Talking about he must have felt like so confused. <laughs> I think embarrassment was the main thing. That and a bit of a black eye. Yeah, not good, is it? <laughs> Because because being horrible, aren't I? Sorry. No, no, it's good. But because because in the it's interesting because you mentioned Felt uh, Lawrence and there was another guy Momus during the eighties. Mm. Those two guys they released an album a year and you were slightly on the same track, really, weren't you, for the eighties? I mean, because I've interviewed. Oh, well, any time we got a chance to record, we'd record, and unless it was absolute dog meat, then we'd put it out. Yes, because yeah. you're because on your second album. A Scandal in Bohemia. Mm -hmm. That's the one that... Did you feel that things had really started to click on that one? Because there's yeah. some classic songs, aren't there? There's a lot of classic songs. And it, and it seems like... Well, the band... it's not for me to say. <laughs> no, you can't say that. But you know what I mean. <laughs> don't you? That's the one that people all think, blimey, you've, you've kind of... You've, you've crafted it, you know. I mean, the... Well, it was, a, it was a great leap forward from the first one. The first one was like, you know, you could almost style it as experimental because... Frankly, we had no clue what we were doing. Um, but, yeah, the second one, we had John Rivers. I mean, give you an idea of how much that session pulled things together. And we'd been out playing, you know, there's Dave J. He's been on top of the pops and stuff, and he's got some attention, of course. Um, 
you know, what's he doing with these clowns? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were playing out and we thought we kind of got our stuff together. And on the very first day of recording Scandal in Bohemia, we set out to put down a version of Southern Mark Smith. And we played it. And at the end of it, John Rivers came through on the uh, talkback. He said, chaps, chaps, chaps. Owen, David, do you not think it would be a good idea if the kick drum and the bass guitar played together? <laughs> we were making our second album. <laughs> you live and learn, don't you? Yes, blimey. Did everyone just look a bit embarrassed? I, I, I just remember chuckling. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, because it's just one of those things, isn't it? And of course, you know, then they then they did exactly that, and uh, we got ourselves a, a micro hit. <laughs> Absolutely, but it was the song "Soul Happy Hour." Do you can you remember that coming together? I mean, the story behind that particular track, because that's that's one that's kind of lasted the test of time, hasn't it? I, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose that's the thing about drinking songs. They're not really ever going to go out of fashion, are they? No. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like the great art subjects of sex, death, talking animals, drinking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the main thing that I remember about the recording of Soul Happy Hour is that the little piano note, if you will, the little piano sort of boop at the end of the introduction is not played by human hand. It's played by the studio cat. Nice. Yeah. I helped him. <laughs> I helped him <laughs> with his timing. Yeah. Excellent. But that little clink on the piano, that's Basil, the studio cat. Oh, go Basil. God, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's those touches that make a record very special. So, so, because so, it's interesting, well, to people like me anyway, but as the, as the 80s progressed, there was a lot of kind of, there was the other kind of this sort of the sound of people like Sade and Working Week and there, there was those kind of that soul jazz vibe that was going in. So there was a bit of kind of, it wasn't just kind of big bombastic production from Trevor Horn. Or the even the jingly, or the jingly jangly sound of the Smiths. There was kind of it was quite a kind of mix of stuff that you could sort of pick up on. So being slightly different kind of helped everybody because because everyone's looking for something a bit unusual, aren't they? So the jazz butcher was definitely one of those ones that would have picked up an audience quite easily. I think one reason that perhaps like the gatekeepers in Britain anyway, struggled with it, was that it was kind of hard to do what they normally do, which is to say, this band sounds like that band. Because we didn't really sound like anybody. You know, I mean, sometimes we'd take the piss. And like, you know, if there was a really crampsy number, then we'd sort of ramp up the sounds to make it sound a bit like the cramps for a laugh. But, like, you know, we didn't really... Nah, we didn't really have... As I say, we didn't really feel much in common with other bands. I mean, you know, socially, politically, whatever, then there were, you know, people that we liked and didn't like. But in musical terms, in like 84, 85, yeah, I guess Go Betweens are cool. Go Betweens are nice. 
And that other Australian band, the Triffids, they were kind of good. I like them. Mm. But we, yeah, I mean, we'd be more likely to go home from a gig and put on like, I don't know, fucking Otis Redding or John Martin or something like that, you know. Yeah. Old. Classic. Classic. So then... I wonder, you know, how, I wonder how much there's... You, you've almost certainly, with your interests, you've almost certainly heard this before, but, like, people will say that um, the, the sound of your sort of classic, rushy indie pop of the 80s is a little bit like people trying to play Northern Soul, but just not very well. And I've got to say, I mean, we were... Yeah, we're all in the band, we're all kind of soul people, but in the 80s, soul took a bit of a wrong turning for me. All that sort of syrupy Luther Vandross and that. Yes. So I wonder if that indie scene and, you know, things like Every Conversation from the June Brides and things like that, if perhaps the white kids of England who had been so taken with, like, Stax and Motown in the 60s, if perhaps they were just sort of seeking some kind of replacement for the soul that wasn't getting made anymore. Yes, I know, because that, that soul music, I know there was, a, yeah, it was quite weird, wasn't it? It was kind of so lush, it was a bit, it didn't really have much I, soul to it, really. Yeah, yeah, everything went a bit blooming Stevie Wonder, you know, I, I, I like it a little bit more raw. Yeah, it's funny, because I always preferred Northern Soul than, than Motown. I kind of, the, the, I, it was kind of, um, because yeah. it kind of, you know, mainly because mostly they only did one single and it was a really good single. They probably did others, but, you know, most of that Northern it's Soul. Like, it's like the punk of soul music, isn't it? It's like, you know, the original 68 punk where, like, a band would stick out one classic single and just disappear back into Arizona forever, you know? Yeah. It's, oh. like, it's like the, culturally, it's, it's that, it's like American music. Yeah, absolutely. Though I did love, I remember in the 80s loving Jackie Wilson. I, I did get a Jackie Wilson mm-hmm. compilation and played it to death. And again, it it wasn't overproduced, but my God, it was an incredible sound. But yes, I, I still think Johnny Marr's guitar is quite something of beauty, really. I have to say it does still. And the rhythm section. Oh, yeah. It did, no, he's a brilliant guitar player. He did do it. But then... As as the I mean we had all the excitement of the eighties, the, the Thatcher years minors, then we had Red Wedge. It, things were getting <laughs> quite exciting. And then and then sort of obviously you sort of eighty seven, you know, it was a big shift. Well I think there was the Smiths broke up, indie pop, a lot of those bands had sort of who had been doing it for five years, because five years is normally the time when most people think oh, I've had enough of this. I'm I'm just gonna we're falling that's out. Quite a long run actually. I mean I think Yes. The natural lifespan of a lineup is generally about two and a half years. Yeah, and then yeah, there's there's issues, aren't there? Well, life life catches up with you. Yes, absolutely, and and sometimes yeah, you, you know, just can't got... you can't tolerate the bass player anymore. <laughs> oh well, that's, that's absolutely standard issue. But know, I'm, I'm the bass I'm the bass player in this other band. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know how to wind everyone up, but. Then ecstasy oh. appeared, didn't it? And then the next generation of sixteen to eighteen-year-olds who went, yeah, forget all that old in- indie music. We want the next thing. I mean, the, you did get other bands coming along who were still doing their kind of stuff, but there was definitely a shift yeah. with the drugs. But then at that point, you signed to Creation Records, which was quite yeah. a, a, was that quite a big move, or was was it the fact that Glass Records had had its day? 
worry that the departure of our unit might have helped to hasten the decline of the class back in the day. Um, but Dave and I have never really talked about that, and we're still mates. Um, I hadn't realised that my glass contract had expired. I was out on the road uh, in Paris playing a ridiculous gig with Alex Green, the sax player. And we finished our six encores of the same song and um, found our way up to the dressing room. And at the top of this little spiral staircase was Alan McGee. And I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. You know, we played the living room when we were starting out. And then once we got into Europe and America, it was like he was just someone we read about in the NME, you know. And there he was. I said, Alan, what the fuck are you doing here? He said, I've come to sign you. I know. <laughs> it wasn't quite that simple because there was competition. There was an, an American record company got involved and it all got a bit complicated. But by the summer, yeah, I'd signed up with Alan. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, because this this is really, this is kind of business talk now, but it's kind of interesting. And I don't think I'm going to embarrass or say anything out of turn, really. Um, as I said, Dave Barker was literally a bloke in a room with a phone. That was it. I don't think he even had a photocopier. <laughs> you know? Lamented. And, um, you know, he took, as I say, he took us all the way from like, a bunch of shambling fox in the Black Lion in Northampton, all the way to, like, national tours of America and Canada. He got us onto a major label in Canada. Um, just, you know, great geezer. Now, what was I going to say about this? Business. Damn, I've lost the thread. Sorry. It, it, say again? You were going to talk about the kind of... I think, I think you were just about to mention something about the business of going from glass to oh, creation. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Glass and creation. Yeah, so as I say, there's Dave. Extraordinary achievements from one bloke talking down a phone. But, you know, we live in England, right? And so living in England, you get the music press, you hear the radio. And um, as I say, I hadn't seen Alan in a couple of years. And it looked from the outside like creation was like this really happening thing, you know, this really happening operation. And I liked Alan anyway as a bloke, but that, that was by the by. But they looked like they had their shit together, as it were. Um... Whereas Dave, you know, it was always it was always hand to mouth. It was always just like swinging from rafter to rafter, you know, to get by. But he was good at it. Yes. But um, yeah, arrived at arrived at creation and realised that yes, in Britain they're a big thing and their bands are. But when it comes to foreign countries, actually Dave was much much better connected. That one man in his phone was better connected than like the three men, one woman in a phone at the creation office, you know. And, um, it, yeah, in a way, it was difficult for them and for us because, you know, they saw everything very much through a, a UK lens. Yeah. Um, and I think they actually found it difficult to believe what we were getting up to on foreign shores. I think they might have thought that we were making some of it up, you know. <laughs> But it was all right because, you know, we'd got ourselves on the ground with the, 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 the groundwork that we'd laid working with Dave. 
we had good contacts, you know, good agents in foreign countries. So we were all right. Yes. But, um, yeah, they, they didn't really kind of get the foreign thing, the creation, in a way that they did. And they, to be honest with you, I don't think they ever really did. I mean, ultimately, in the late 90s, the whole thing just got overwhelmed by ISIS. You know, there was no time for anything else. But even before then, when they were doing quite well and, like, putting the scream and people like that just on the edges of the charts, you know, even then, they didn't really have their foreign stuff down at all. And I think they thought when they did the deal with Sony that, oh, this is great, Sony will take care of it in the foreign countries. Um, that, however, was not my personal experience at all. I can remember talking to a lady from Sony TriStar in Canada when Waiting for the Love Bus was released in 93. Yes. And they did it as a domestic release over there. No, no, they did it as an import. That's right. Sony, Mercury had been putting out um, domestic releases in Canada for years. And these Sony guys, they put it out as an import. So, of course, all the punters see it in the shops as an import, and they think, ah, well, that'll be here as a domestic in a couple of weeks. I'll get it then when it's cheaper. Yes. You know? And, uh, yeah, this girl from uh, Sony Canada was on the phone to me. I said, how, how, how's it going with the Love Bus thing? And she went, oh, it's, it's going really good. And I said, well, what, what have you sold? And the figure that she gave me was in the region of 1% of what we would have seen selling with Mercury as domestic release. 1%, David. Yes. You know, Sony did not... They were different in different territories. Sony Germany were fine. Sony Switzerland were fine. Uh, lady from Sony Switzerland actually blew my mind. We were in a dressing room in Zurich, and this lady was there, and she was super smart, super good-looking, super clever, super well-dressed. And she gave us all little Sony Swiss Army knives, you know, like, welcome aboard, chaps. <laughs> and That's so uh, sweet. We were marvelling marveling at our tiny Sony knives. I said to her, oh, yeah, I mean, because Japanese company, right? I mean, is it true that you go in in the mornings and do the company song? You know, I'm winding her up a little bit. I'm going to do the company song. And completely straight-faced, she turned around to me and said, oh, yeah, do you want to see? And I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes into this mad little sort of Tai Chi dance and starts singing, oh, me muscle, my son, oh, follow me. And all the band are there, and we're all cracking up. We're going, is this real? And then she went, of course it's not, you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, she got you, didn't she? She did. Yeah, yeah, but you know, Germany and Switzerland, great. Yes. Canada, one percent. One percent. So, foreign policy was always a weakness of creation. But of course, from the outside, I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you crack? I mean, because you sounded like because because one thing that always finishes bands off is touring America. But you sounded like you were both good tour in Europe and obviously France was one of your hot spots but also you seem like you had a good time tour in America as well I tried to count up the number of times I've been over to America to play and it was stupid it's something like 12 or 13 or something like that 
you know, I, most people in England, because we weren't on the John Peel show, they think, oh, yeah, Jazz Butcher, obscure nobodies, failures. It's like, yeah, you've done 13 tours in the US, have you? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Mm. I mean, you know, I said we didn't really feel like we sort of belonged anywhere, you know. Um, we were always our own little micro-universe. And, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an example of it. I mean, most people, if I told them things that were going on in America, they they would simply think that I was making it up. Did you, know? it, did you feel, because there was there is a little gang of people who never got the... I mean, it's a bit un, in a way, it's a bit unfair on John Peel, but, but they, they didn't get the John Peel moment, you know, like Momus, Lawrence, yourselves, and there's others That's as well. That's interesting, isn't it, actually, because, you know, I really like Felt and I really like Momus. Yes. And, um, <laughs> we, but, did, we did get played once on the Peel show, and quite by accident I heard it. Um, I walked into my flat, it was a Tuesday night, about 10 o'clock, and I turned on the radio, like, automatically as I walked in the room. And I heard John Peel's voice, and the first thing I heard him say was, now, I don't really like this band very much, but I felt I should play this because it mentions Bruce Grobbler. <laughs> and he played Caroline Wheeler's birthday present. And I thought, all oh, right, well, we know where we stand then, don't we? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, John Peel, I've got endless respect for his producer, John Walters. John Peel, uh, you know, somebody lent me a book of his, um, like, various magazine articles he'd written, and there was one from the turn of 75, 76, where he was, um, he was, like, having fun with imaginary awards, and he went and... Uh, the biggest bores of 1976 will be uh, Patti Smith and Tom Waits. Um, I read that, you know, not so long ago, and I thought, oh, there you go, there you go. There's John Peel for you. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, the wedding present of geniuses. Yeah, do me a favour. Yes. I know. It's tricky, isn't it? It's a tricky one. They're probably, yes, there was a lot resting on his shoulders at times, weren't there? And the thing is, if there were certain... Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember him blatting on using words like beautiful about Tyrannosaurus Rex bongo jams. Then I can remember him playing, like, Ball of Tubular Bells or Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or the, the, the hot new waxing from Van de Graaff Generator. And then, like, six months down the road, the Ramones are the best thing that's ever happened. And the next thing you know, he's playing Bone Orchard. Yeah, Bone Orchard. You know, oh, what, you just like everything apart from my group. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I remember, I do, I, I do love listening to those clips of him doing the perfume garden when his voice was yeah, very different. Yes, it, it was yeah. of its time. Did you, as, as we progress, because again, you know, though you went to Creation Records, you still managed to sort of be very prolific in that period up to, well, basically through mm. throughout the late 80s into the to the mid-90s, which was quite a period. So you'd sort of gone from the indie world, then there was the dance bit, then there was grunge, and then Britpop. So did you, were you just thinking, fuck it, we're just, we're just on our own trip here, it doesn't matter what else is happening in the world, we're just going for it? Well, you see, the thing with us, I guess, you know, it largely comes down to America, but also, you know, fan bases in Germany, France, Spain, Japan, Australia, you know, Canada. 
Um, we never lost anybody any money. All our records would break even, and then the old 50-50 split would happen on the handshake, you know? Yeah. So there was never any reason for us to stop making records. We always had a sufficient fan base, sufficient numbers, that, you know, people could feel safe giving us money to put, go into a recording studio. And, yeah, I don't think we've ever let anybody down in that department. But, you know, by the 90s, things were getting weird. Um, record labels would rather throw buckets of money at something that was clearly failing, but that they'd invested a lot in. They, they would rather throw good money after bad than go to some little guy like me or Cusworth, who would always bring you in an album on time, on budget, would always make you a few quid. You know, we had to sit things out. I remember one year, Momus had to go and release his album, not with Creation, but Cherry Red, because Kevin Shields was just eating all the money, making Loveless. And, um, you know, there, there just was no possibility for poor old Momus to get his record out on the label. So he was sent out on loan, as it were, to Cherry Red for that one. Yes, good old Cherry Red. They saved the day, didn't they? Sometimes we did. So when when oh, you yes. got, but when you got to the mid nineties and you were doing this, this is where you kind of had a bit of a break, wasn't it? Um, well, it it depends which way you look at it. Um, by the end of ninety five, I'd made up my mind that I had to murder the jazz butcher because the way I felt about it the band actually belonged to all those people screaming for soul happy hour or the devil is my friend. And we just played the instruments in it. Yes. And I wanted the freedom to, you know, get excited about music again, not, not feel that I had to sort of conform to some kind of weird self parody template. You know, I kind of tried that with the illuminate album, sort of tried to make the kind of jazz butcher album that jazz butcher fans might like. Um, and then I thought, nah, don't be a clown. Don't do that. You know? But it was too late. I made it. <laughs> <laughs> but by the end of 95, I said, look, lads, let's, let, let's call it a day. Um, there wasn't a lot of work. We hadn't got good agency representation anymore. Um, and, yeah, you know, we were competing with the Brit pop nonsense. Which, you know, if you ask some American journalists, they'll tell you that I invented Brit pop. How embarrassing. <laughs> yes. I but mean, it, but I, when can, I can remember Cult of the Basement being described as Britpop in 1990 in America. Oh. You know, so like, it's... But it's like anything, isn't it? You know, who wants to be the godfather of anything, to be honest? Least of all that. <laughs> no. But it was... But then you... But, but you were very prolific, you know. Did it feel different starting to release albums as a solo artist rather than with behind, you know, behind the name The Jazz Butcher? Well, you know, I, 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 I set off terribly excited to uh, make the next record, um, which I thought was going to be a solo record, but I took so long making it and so many people dropped by and started contributing little bits that it became clear I was making an album and it became clear that they, you know, if you're going to make an album, you really want to have a band. And the sort of band 
emerged from the making of the record, and that was too much Sonic. But that never really got off the ground. By the time we finally got the record finished, um, and we spent loads of Noel Gallagher's money on it, <laughs> um, by the time we got it done and out, um, creation was like madly sclerotic. Like in the first, it was just Oasis had consumed everything. Nothing else was getting any attention at all. And like in the first couple of weeks, I remember being horrified to find that the Sumo Sonic LP had sold something like 800 copies. I was like, this isn't going good. And then in the newspaper, I read that Kevin Rowland, who got a record out on creation at the same time, had sold even fewer. And I thought, well, look, there's something very wrong here. (laughs) Yes. And at that time, um, do you know Seb Shelton? No. Seb used to play drums in Dex's Midnight Runners, as it happens. And for many years, he managed Rollo McGinty in the Wooden Tops. Oh, yes. Classic. And round about this time, through my friendship with Rollo, Seb was trying to help. He wasn't managing Sumo Sonic, but he was kind of helping us out in that department. And like, you know, as I say, creation was just like you couldn't get anything done. And so Seb started saying, well, record companies, you've got to get tough with them. Start shouting at them and threatening them and carrying on. And I'm, are you sure about this, Seb? Yeah, go on, shout out. Send them letters. I was like, all right. And uh, the result of this is I got a handwritten letter from the president going, ta, ta, Christ. <laughs> Saying, oh, no, we'd better call it a day before you get more bitter. Oh. And I was like, Alan, I'm not bitter. <laughs> well, I'm a bit bitter now. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the label lasted, what, another six months? They were doomed. And, you know, Alan said himself when he came back from being ill, he, you know, he, he kidded himself, he got his label back, and then he realised he hadn't really. Because Sony were in there, and fucking Oasis people were there, and, uh, you know, most of the people working at Creation by that stage were just people who hoped to work on Oasis or Primal Scream, because maybe that way they'd get that fancy job with Warners next year. Yes. It had just turned into another record company. And also, of course, by the by the late 90s, the other problem you've got is that there are now people going to college to know what a good record is. You know, they're getting degrees in, like, indie pop or whatever. You know? Yes, that was um, that was very popular during that time, wasn't it? Suddenly someone, we need a three-year degree on music production values. How yeah. to be a band. Well, it makes a change from it makes a change from a three-year degree in golf club management, I suppose. <laughs> Hospitality. Um, there you go. I mean, that's the modern world, isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah, so, um, no, it was, you know, I wasn't bitter at all, honestly. I, I had a great time working with Alan. Yeah. If, if, every minute was a laugh. And, you know, I said earlier on that in 84 we didn't really feel like part of anything, but I definitely felt like part of creation. You know, I was proud to be part of creation. Still yes. am. Well, yeah, I know, you've got quite a legacy. So then we're in, when we turn the, the 
millennium, you went to Vinyl Japan, which was one of those classic labels who sort of hoovered up lots of indie pop bands, didn't they? They either reissued yeah. stuff or they seemed to have cash, didn't they, to do things. Did you And you did Rotten Soul with them. Yeah, we did it cheap, to be honest. They didn't have that much cash. <laughs> <laughs> they were based... Uh, the, the guy who runs it is called Tetsuya Nakatani, and he's quite an eccentric fellow, but he's, he's a good man. And um, he has a bunch of record shops in Japan. Uh, you know, old-school record shops with vinyl and stuff. And um, comes over to England collects things, you know, does his, does his import-export trading. And on the back of that, he has enough money to organise little short trips for bands to go and play over there. Um, it's kind of weird. I mean, I can remember sitting in Japan with the band. No, in fact, it wasn't with my band. It was with um, Stuart Moxon from Young Marble Giants. And, um, yeah, we were working out you know, how on earth can he afford to bring us over here, put us in hotels, take us to dinner, pay us? And on the on the flight home, it was, we did a little cost-benefit analysis, I think, and uh, we figured that he'd probably broken even, you know, to within 10 quid broken even on the whole thing. He's just doing it because he likes it, you know? Yes. Well, I know he's very, you know, some a lot of bands who just went, oh, yes, we suddenly found ourselves in Japan after sort of thinking that was the end of the band. I remember there was Julian Henry from the Hit Parade suddenly was like, God, we're now in Japan. And there's a lot of people who yeah. just got signed up. And I suppose it's an enjoyable hobby, better than probably buying a football club and then thinking, shit, we're losing even more. <laughs> so I don't know. It's nice. If, you, if you've got the business wherewithal, that's probably quite a good little... Hobby, your yeah, wife. No, I mean, it, I had it for a hobby for a while. When I when I had some money, um, somebody asked me if I'd do a, if I'd sort of organise an acoustic night at the local Labour club. And I think we did two or three months with local vaguely acoustic talent. Um, and then we booked Slipstream, and the walls were shaking. And I was talking to the guys there. I was saying, listen. Um, you know, it's supposed to be an acoustic club, right? And I just put on this, like, Spaceman 3 oral assault. <laughs> you know, um, are we going to get away with this or am I in trouble? And my man Andy, he got me booked in there. He said, look, you're all right. Just bear in mind that the owners, the only kind of music that really don't like is drum and bass. So uh, don't do any drum and bass and everything will be groovy. And I'm like, yes, acoustic just means that you can hear it. Brilliant. And the very next month, I got Rolo up, thinking that he'd come with an acoustic guitar and just do some pretty Rolo songs. Yes. No, no. He turned up with a load of dub plates and played drum and bass at ear-crushing volume all night long. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And at the end of it, the old boys who run the place, they came to me and they said, oh, that was really good, wasn't it, Pat? I thought, yes, we can do anything. And... <laughs> I just got more and more ridiculously ambitious with the bookings. I mean, we ended up putting David J on in there, you know, in, in the Labour Club. And that, we had guys from LA, Berlin. And although the club were quite generous with what they gave me, I also was spaffing it, squandering money on this. And everybody in town knew it. And I'd say, yeah, 
But A, I ran the club for the artists, not for the audience. And B, I'd probably spend this much on Sky Sports if my mate didn't already have it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know? It's like, yeah, I mean, spending money on putting on great live music nights, I mean, beats spending money on a monogrammed rug, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's good. Your your moment of philanthropy was... was, um was memorable. It's good. It's it's good. It's good to do. Easy. I always think it's good to organise things because it's a real pain in the arse. And then after you know, and you enjoy it, but you realise there's a lot to it, and you get a lot of. You only hear the criticism and the negative feedback. From my experience, you don't get anybody coming up. And well, you might get the odd person, but mostly it's just like, oh, by the way, I just want to have a little word with you because there's been a little issue. Yes. And you find if yourself... I can improve you. I can improve you. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. It's like, and then you yeah. look at that person. You get to that point where you look at that person and go, have you ever done anything in your life, mate? Have you really? Because if you, if you have, you wouldn't come up to me and complain there's no fucking toilet rolls or the water isn't, the hot water isn't hot enough or something. You know, it's that kind of level of someone wanting to just go, yes, you know, and you think, Jesus, mate. Yes. Yeah. A friend of mine was, um, he was working at a local college where they do music courses. And part of these music courses is that every now and again these students have to assemble a band and play a gig. And poor Steve had drawn the short straw and he was behind the mixing desk at one of these all-day events of student bands. And he was sound-checking these little so-and-sos one after the other. You know, all these young, pushy bands who fancied themselves who weren't any good. And he thinks he's just got to the end of it. He's like, right, that's the last one checked. Excellent. I'm just sitting down for an hour or two and wait for them. It's just to start, you know. And um, he sees this kind of bashful musician kid sort of shuffling towards the desk, eyes on the floor, you know, very shoegazy. And um, he cocks him and he thinks, OK, here we go. What do we want? You know, oh, could I have a bit more bass in my monitor, please, or whatever? And the kid shuffles up to him, all shy and impressed, finally dares to address the grown-up behind the monitor, behind the mixing desk and says, is there a bin? <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, no, it never ends, does it? It never ends. It's good fun putting on mind-blowing nights. And as I say, I used to do it very much with the artist in mind because obviously, having done a few hundred gigs myself, I know what musicians want when they turn up at a venue. And I would be on it. You know, they'd come in, they'd get a beer. They'd, they'd do their sound check, they'd get properly sound checked. I'd bring them around my house, I'd cook them a dinner. I'd roll them a joint. And then, before they went on, I'll give them an envelope with their money in it. Tidy. It's as easy as that. It's as easy as that. <laughs> you know? And then if, if they're one of these bands that's got to shoot off for their schedule or whatever, then at the end of the gig, yeah, they've got the money, they can up and leave. Or if they're one of those bands that formed the majority at our club, they can stick the money in the inside pocket, come around my place and get mashed all night. Nice. It's, yeah. a, it's a nice way to yeah. finish the day. Yeah, and if you put musicians in that frame of mind, they're going to give you memorable shows because they're in a really good mood. 
Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So then, yeah. after your rotten soul, you know, experience with Vinyl Japan, it's it's mm. kind it's quite then. The recording has, has slowed down, hasn't it? Mm. Well, a few things happened. Um, we were still playing jazz butcher gigs. Um, I mean, in 2000, we did a five-week tour of the USA, a band that didn't exist. And it's pretty much original lineup. Um, only the bass player had changed, Stevie Valentine. And, um, yeah, 2001, we were on the West Coast in the summer, and we brought Stevie back with us and played England and Germany and Belgium. Uh, and then, in September 2001, everything went to shit and um, because some Saudi lunatics had gone and blown up some buildings in New York George W. Bush decided that the best way to counter this kind of terrorism would be to triple the price of a musician's work visa and subject them to a lengthy and humiliating business at the embassy before they could even get the visa yes the good old he also, at that point, tried to introduce visas for journalists until someone pointed out to him that the last person who'd done that was Adolf Hitler. Um, so as 2001 came to an end, I was like, well, as long as that clown's in charge of America, I ain't going. I will not enter that country. You know, I will not play the 1936 Olympics. Yeah. And so... That pretty much shut the jazz butcher thing down. We did do some more dates in Europe in 2002, but for the most part, the jazz butcher thing shut down at that point. And that's when I started doing this band, Wilson. And that really took up the, the first decade of the 21st century. It was just that. It was largely locally based because we had something like seven or eight members, and most of them had jobs. So it was like physically impossible for us to turn up for sound checks in other towns. We didn't even try, you know. Um, we did play did play London a little bit, Leeds. We used to go out and play in Wales, but for the most part it was a Northampton based thing. Yeah. And because because I was pissed off with George W. Bush, um, it was also a great vehicle for very hostile lyrics. Basically Wilson was everything that Sumo Sonic should have been. But with Sumo Sonic, we'd fallen for the kind of wide-eyed Pacific Rim sort of manga sort of vibe. All, you know, all like super positive and ridiculous. Whereas with Wilson, it was like we were better at doing that kind of music by now. And it was really hostile. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so we really, really, I really enjoyed that band. It had a, it had a real gang vibe. Sound-wise, it was like Little Happy Mondays, Little Primal Scream. It was quite sort of ravey. Yes. Um, yeah. So that, um, just bring it up to the current day then. So where are well, you now with your sort of next musical journey? Um, well, right now, and it seems ridiculous for a man of my age, um, I've got three different record companies after me for an LP. Um, I think you know that Fire Records have been like, they've, they've bought the catalogue off me and they've been sticking out all these lovely box sets and vinyl reissues and all that. 
and that's still very much ongoing. Um, there are four more vinyl reissues that are sitting on my shelf waiting for whenever Record Store Day happens. Yes. <laughs> and um, there's uh, another box set as well with all the singles and radio sessions and stuff like that. Um, so that's all still to come with fire. Um, but I need to know if they want to do the next LP because I've got a German label that's after me. And also, as I said earlier on, Dave Barker's back in business. Oh, nice. So is that, just as a guess, is that Fire Station Records in Germany or a different one? No, it's a label called Tapeta. They do monochrome set, Pete Astor, a few people like that. Oh, cool label. They're quite, quite a classy label and... Oddly enough, given that they're in Germany and I'm here, when I was talking to them, they were very, very positive. It was like we were already married, you know. <laughs> and um, we were talking about different studios that we might use and that. Because I, I, I was suspicious. I thought, well, your budget doesn't look... You know, I'm, I'm quite an expensive bloke to record. I want to go to a real studio for quite a long time. I want to pay my musicians. I want to feed them. I want a drug budget. You know, I'm, I make expensive records. Yeah. Um, and I was looking at their proposal just before the lockdown, and I was thinking, oh, lads, nah, this isn't happening. But when I started talking to them recently, when they reappeared, and, oh, my God, they haven't gone away, um, they were actually very, uh, very, very positive, and they were talking about recording studios. And they were talking about this one producer, Lee Russell. And... As soon as this came up, I said to the German guy just to pay the label, I said to him, mate, I've been screaming at Lee Russell to work with me for the last eight years. <laughs> so um, that's quite exciting. And, uh, yeah, basically in the next week or two, I shall go over and have a look at Lee's setup and see if it's like, feasible or not, nice. what kind of record we can make there. Um, but who I'm making it for... At this stage, I honestly cannot tell you, because I, I guess Fire have got first dibs. Um, I think if if one had the choice, you know, for your fancy classic-style jazz butcher album in the vein of the last one we did, you know, in the vein of um, Last of the Gentlemen Adventurers, if you're looking to do one of those, probably the Germans are the guys to go with. Mm. But it has occurred to me that for Dave, I would make the extra, I'd go the extra mile and I'd make him another album. Just <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, a mad dub album or something like that, because uh, you know he's a man of he's a man of distinguished taste. So basically, so I, I honestly, I honestly don't know David exactly where it's going at this point. No, who's going to be putting what out? But it seems fairly clear that something's going to be coming out. Yeah, but you have, I mean, you're in an amazingly good position. So are you slightly tempted to think late at night when you've had a few to drink? Or smoke. Did you think, fuck it, I'll just do, I'll, I'll say yes to all of them, just do uh, three albums in the next couple of years? <laughs> this reminds me of um, when Alan McGee got into the rave scene. And um, we were talking about this one day down at the office in Hackney. And he turned to me and said, Pat, they're worse than tourists. I said, what do you mean? He said, I've just had this band come in, this duo. And um, they'd done a single, and they played it to me, and I said, brilliant, I'll put it out. And, um, you know, I got it pressed up, I got the sleeve done, 
And then I found out that the little bastards put it out with another record about three weeks before. <laughs> yeah. It was some Tories, Pat. Yeah. Who was that? So I don't know if I should do that. I, You know, frankly, I've, I've got... I've probably got, like, a straight pretty jazz butcher album in me, and I've probably got a mad freak out dub album in me. But I don't think I've got a third. I think that would be spreading things far too thin, you know? Yeah, that is quite tricky. So, look, just last question then. If you could, you could have said something, some wise bit of advice to your 18-year-old self, and, you know, after all this experience you've had and the ups and downs and all that, what, is there anything that you think, God, I would, I would have just kind of, that's the one thing I wished I had known before as I started out, even though, you know, you need, you know, we could all say, you know, you need to learn these lessons and stuff. But if there's something that, yeah. which was quite like, shit, I wished I'd kept my eye on something or not done one thing or done something else. Well, I mean, I'd, yeah, I think I'd probably like all people who reach a certain level of maturity. I wish I hadn't been quite such a wanker when I was young, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can't really turn to your 18-year-old self and say, Get a haircut, don't be a wanker. <laughs> but uh, it, it reminds me of something that actually happened um, about two years ago. Um, I got booked to do a surprise set in the house of a bloke who was having his 50th birthday. And I turned up and I did my shit and his son was there and he plays a bit of tennis sax, so... As he got a bit tipsy, he got a bit bolder and joined in a bit, which is kind of fun. Made his mum very happy. And at the end of the night, um, this lad was appointed to walk me back to my hotel. And so we're strolling through the streets of Nantwich. And, you know, the guy's 18 and he's sloshed. And he's got his girlfriend with him. And we're walking along and he says, pat, pat, pat. You know, watching you tonight and playing with you tonight, it was, it was so great. I, 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 I've really made up my mind now. I'm, I'm going to be a musician. I really want to be a musician. Um, do you, you know, I, honestly, Pat, I really want to be a musician. What, do you have any advice? Have you, is there anything you can tell me, Pat? And I looked at this little guy. <laughs> I said to him, Always turn up on time. Always say please and thank you. And he's looking at me with wide eyes, nodding his head. And I go, and don't trust Whitey. <laughs> <laughs> and his little face. His little face, David. But yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's good advice, honestly. Turn up on time, say please and thank you, and don't trust Whitey. It's good advice. It's got to be done, isn't it? Yeah, man. It's good. Bit done bit my sister Mel, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and also, I mean, just and also, you've you've worked with a phenomenal lot of people, haven't you? In your in your well, not phenomenal, but you know, quite a lot. Have you managed to sort of keep quite nice kind of relationships with you know most of the the ex band members? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know to. Two or three of them have passed on now, bless. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm still in touch with Max, uh, David. It's uh, dated last last autumn. Um, I talked to Paul Moraney on the phone because he's in Australia. Didn't he talk to you the other day? He did. He did. We had an interview. 
and he's a nice guy. He's been in lots of different bands and stuff. But yes. Oh man, he's yeah, he's he's, he's one of the greatest drummers. He's also a really good guitar player. He won't tell you that, but he is. Um, so yeah, I'm still mates with him. Crouchy, the guitar player from the Love Bus sessions, I'm still mates with him. And Nick, the drummer from that session, he's in Canada, but we still communicate. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I, there's probably like only perhaps one or uh, push two that I wouldn't want to talk to. You know? Yeah, that's quite good odds. Which out of about thirty over the years isn't bad going. That's very good. It's very good. Yes. Well, look, this has been brilliant. Well, that's been fantastic. Well, thank you, Pat, for this. This has been yeah, um, pleasure, mate. amazing. And, um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll keep in touch. I'll tell you when I put it out or, or send you a link and then you could use it. Can I tell you, can I tell you, we, we kind of brushed over the ecstasy thing. Can I tell you my best ecstasy story? Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> in the... I guess probably about May of 1988. You know, we knew the acid house thing was kicking off. We knew this. We knew ecstasy was coming. Um, but at this point, we got on an airplane and went to tour America in our rock band. And we were out there for five weeks. And we flew home. And, you know, as I say, we'd, we'd known about the acid house thing, but it was pretty underground. It was no big deal. And um, we talked about it to the Americans. And then we went home. And after a few nights, we were out in London. Me, Mulraney, Lawrence, the bass player. can't remember if Richard was there or not, but we were, we were out as a band, as a gang band. You know, we've been on tour, and we can't really talk to anyone except each other. And we're walking up the Charing Cross Road at about 11 o'clock at night. And there's some lads coming down the same side of the road towards us. They're clearly off it. And most alarmingly, they're going, Millwall! Millwall! Like this. So Mulroney is immediately freaking out because he's West Ham. I'm immediately freaking out because I don't want to die. <laughs> and Lawrence is freaking out because he's always freaking out. <laughs> and it's like, well, what do we do? These guys are millwalling at us. And we're about, what, 40 yards apart and closing. You know, we can cross the road, but they're just going to chase us. We, you know, without anything being said, we decide, well, we're just going to face this one out. So we keep walking and they keep walking. And eventually, there we are, Jazz Butcher Band and Millwall, face to face. <laughs> What's going to happen? <laughs> what happens is that Millwall throws its arms around the Jazz Butcher Band and goes, Why, matey, is he going mm, safe? <laughs> 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 and they go on their way, and we go on ours going like, What the fuck just happened? Nice. <laughs> and of course, what had happened? It only took those five weeks that we were away for ecstasy to come up from underground to the point where Millwall fans had taken it. You know? Yes, absolutely. It's it's and it's kind just, of a well-known we documentary. Isn't it? Those five weeks. Yeah. I know how for the how the football hooligan problem disappeared with ecstasy. It really did. 
I mean, you look at all those appalling things that Thatcher and her pals tried to do, putting people behind barbed wire fences like concentration bands and stuff. You know. And then what made the problem go away? Oh, illegal drugs. Yes. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and that was Maybe it. Maybe they shouldn't be so illegal. <laughs> just, put, just putting it out there. Yes, this is true. I know, it's a bit... Was it Timothy Leary, wasn't it? Tune in, turn on, drop out. Nice. Yeah, my mate Sonic from Spaceman met Timothy Leary. Oh. Was yeah, he impressed? Um, yeah, I think he was, actually, yeah. I think they got on quite well. Yeah, good. Good, good. Right, well, Pat, look, I must, um, I must let you get on. But thanks again, and I'll, I'll tell you when I put this out. But this has been amazing. Cheers. Thank you, Pat. Well, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. I have. Take care. No, it's good. Okay, look, I'll keep you in touch anyway, but thanks a lot again. Sweet. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye-bye. And that is the end of the interview. Well done. If you got to the end, you deserve a medal of some description. Anyway, look, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. A huge thanks, a big thank you and appreciation to Pat Fish from The Jazz Butcher. You can find out more information if you just go to jazzbutcher.com and probably there's a page on Facebook as well. We've all got a page on Facebook. Anyway, if you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do at C86show. And also, um, these have all been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Check them out. It will help you sleep at night. Anyway, stay safe. Have a good week. <laughs>